Welcome, my name is David, and I am the pastor here at Redeemer, and today uh, we continue on in our series titled Creed. If you're uh, new here for the first time, we are in the middle of a series that we are calling Creed, and what it is is it's a study of the core essential beliefs of Christian faith as they are communicated in a confession that the church has been saying almost for the last 2,000 years called the Apostles' Creed. And just so I can be clear, um, we are not preaching the Apostles' Creed. We're preaching the Bible. We will study the creed through the witness of the scriptures. That's what we've been doing the last few weeks because the scriptures are primary and the creed is secondary. But what the creed does is it offers us a way to focus some of the central ideas in the story of Jesus as we hear uh, and, and remember how the early church put together this narrative of salvation that's centered around the death and the resurrection of Jesus and has been confessing that narrative for the last 2,000 years. The creed gives us a way to just kind of explore that, that central part of our faith, and that's what we've been doing. Today, uh, we're going to continue to look um, at the creed, and we're going to study something under the heading of Jesus. There are, there are really three headings in the creed. Uh, one's God the Father, one is Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Last is uh, under the heading of the Holy Spirit. And under the heading of Jesus Christ, there's a very interesting line uh, called the, the, where it says, um, Jesus descended to the dead. Um, I believe in Jesus Christ, and then it eventually says, who descended to the dead. He descended to the dead. And uh, this, this phrase has a lot more in it than I think many of us uh, probably have any idea, and um, actually a lot more in it than I, than I knew about until I started getting into it. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to kind of explore that in, this, in the Bible this morning. Um, but before we get into it, as we like to do, why don't we just bow our heads and, and pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, are so thankful for just this chance to be here and to... Um, remember this confession of the church that, that's been spoken for the last 2,000 years, to remember that we as followers of you right here and now join with a church uh, that has been around ever since you overcame the grave. And as we uh, study this truth this morning, I just pray that you, you would speak to our hearts, that you would open up our minds, and that we'd, we'd see the bigness, the, the incredible uh, broadness of your gift of salvation and, and, and your Holy Spirit would be at work to, to bring that home in each and every one of our lives. Lord, uh, may, may my words uh, and all our thoughts be pleasing in your sight. God, you are a rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> uh, interrogation scenes. Seems to me that every good crime scene uh, crime investigation movie that, that has that as the central storyline has a really good interrogation scene. There's a plot building, suspense driving scene where somebody who is suspected of a crime is being interrogated. And sometimes uh, in movies and television, that scene will be in a courtroom. This is uh, the one that came to mind when I was thinking about this. This is the movie A Time to Kill, which is a really good movie. Um, this is one of the most incredible scenes where, uh, you know, the suspect is on the stand and the lawyer comes and interrogates him. 
And, uh, and there's a big surprise in this movie. If you haven't seen it, you should. It also helps that these two guys, Samuel L. and Matthew McConaughey, are pretty decent actors in this scene as well. Uh, sometimes interrogation scenes happen in dark, cloistered, one-way mirrored rooms, right? There has been an absolute glut of uh, criminal investigation movies, maybe the past like 15 years that are just finally coming to an end now, CSI, NCIS, there's 20 billion others that um, I'm sure some of us binge watched over the years. And, uh, and, and in those, you know, you, you get the suspect in this little room and you just try to pry it out of them. David Caruso or LL Cool J leans across the table and tries to find out whether or not you were guilty. Those two guys, maybe not quite the same caliber actors as McConaughey and Samuel L. <laughs> but uh, wherever and whoever was doing the interrogation, there was always a, a question uh, almost always a question that gets asked of the suspect, uh, especially when they haven't been convicted yet, and especially when they're pretty sure when the crime happened, and it's the alibi question, right? Namely, does the suspect have one? If we know that the, that the murder happened between the hours of 12 a.m. and 4 a.m. one particular day, what, what does LL Cool J lean across the table and ask of the person in the interrogation room? Where were you? between the hours of 12 a.m. and 4 a.m. on this particular day, right? Bro, LL Cool J would probably say at the end of that. Okay, so I want to draw this parallel for you. Uh, we know that Jesus Christ died on the cross on Good Friday. We also know that on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, okay? But, but here's the thing that most of us have never, ever thought about. Where was Jesus and what was he doing between those two events? Between the hours of Good Friday when he died and, and the time of Sunday morning when we remember that he rose from the dead, what, what was Jesus doing? Where, where was he at? Here's, here's what I want to tell you. He descended to the dead is the creed's answer to that question. And it's a significant answer. It wouldn't have been included in the creed if it wasn't. It's not dead space. It has meaning. And what I want to do this morning is kind of in that space of Holy Saturday, which is what that time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday is called, just talk about uh, some of the, the, the clues and understandings that we have from the scripture that are, that, that are uh, being communicated by he descended to dead in the creed, okay? Here's... here's um, uh, but before actually we do that, I want to actually uh, do a little clarifying work, and, that, and it's this. Did Jesus descend to the dead, or did he descend into hell? Did he descend to the dead or into hell? You know, one of the things that uh, I've, I, one of the conversations I've had since we started this series is uh, from folks who had been familiar with it before, a lot of them have come up to me and said, David, um, I love the Apostles' Creed, but this isn't exactly the words that I learned when I started saying this creed. I see some heads nodding. I bet some of you are in this boat. Um, and, uh, and, and to step back here for a moment uh, and give you the bigger picture, as, as a lot of y'all who've come to me and said that have figured out, there are actually a couple versions of the Apostles' Creed. There's four or five prevailing versions of the creed that are spoken today. There's a Catholic version, there's an Eastern Orthodox version, there's a Lutheran version, there's a Methodist version, there's an ecumenical version, and I am sure there are more that I don't know about. 
We have been saying the ecumenical version here at Redeemer. And, uh, and that is really uh, one that's designed to bridge the gap uh, kind of between the different traditions. Uh, and also for folks who grew up saying no creed at all, didn't even know what the Apostles' Creed was. And let me say, if it bothers you that what we're saying is a little different than the one that, you know, got put into your brain whenever you learned it, uh, I'm sorry about that. No, uh, <laughs> no uh, it, that's not a problem. Like, I, I, we don't have any kind of major commitment to this version of the creed. If you want to stick with, with, with the way you learned it and say Jesus uh, is, is coming again to judge the quick and the dead, you are welcome to do that. I have no problem with it. Say quick, really. Um, I'm just happy that you're, that you're learning and have said the creed at all. But, but th- that phrase, uh, the quick and the dead, is really a good example of why most of the differences between the different versions don't make any significant difference at all. They don't, they don't matter because they don't make any theologically meaningful difference, right? In the ecumenical version, in a lot of versions, they've updated this word quick to living, because that is essentially what it means, right? I, and I did a little research to confirm that, evidently. Um, in, I think, the 15th century, uh, it was common that when a woman would get pregnant and she'd feel the first movements of that baby in her stomach, it was called the quickening, right? Sounds a little bit like a horror film to me, <laughs> the quickening. <laughs> but, um, but, but that's what they called it, and Shakespeare used that language, and so did, um, it's also used in the King James Bible to describe something that's alive. But here's the thing, today, nobody says anything is alive by describing it as quick, right? And so some of us have updated the language, and that's no problem, because what we're after is, is, is the meaning, the theological significance, that one day Jesus is going to return, and there is going to be a judgment, and those who are alive, as well as those who had died at, uh, at an earlier time, are going to be part of that judgment, right? And if you're a slow person, right, if you're not quick, you're not off the hook, right? You're still going to get judged. Y'all were quick enough to catch that joke. Good. Okay, so in our phrase, he descended to the dead, or, or was it he descended to the hell, it, to, to the hell, to hell, is there a difference? Which, which one is it, right? And the, the answer is actually that Jesus descended to the dead, and there is a meaningful, significant difference. First, um, historically, the first times that we ever see this phrase written in the creed, it's, it's Jesus descended to the dead. It is not Jesus descended into hell. The, the earliest versions that we have are written in Greek and Latin, and, and they, they say Jesus descended to the dead. It's not until later that, that there are versions that come out where there's this interpretive step made where it says Jesus descended into hell. So that's the first thing to know. Secondly, when we modern people hear the word hell, we actually tend to have a rather singular understanding of what that means, right? Hell seems to us to be a terrible place of torment. It's the opposite of heaven, right? We might even picture uh, Satan ruling there which pit, which, with a pitchfork in hand and flames like coming up from the ground, right? And a lot of that is actually more influenced by Dante's Inferno than it is the biblical understanding of hell. And there is a biblical understanding of hell, but what we need to realize is that among the first Jews and Christians, that wasn't what they thought of when they thought of what happens to people when they die. They had a, a 
broader understanding of the afterlife um, than just the images of hell that we have today. Jews and early Christians actually believed that when a person died, their soul, their spiritual being would travel to a place that was for dead souls. And it had a name, and in the Bible, it's called Sheol. S-H-E-O-L. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but we can run with it. Sheol. Lots of examples of Sheol in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 16 is just, is just one of them. King David has evaded death, and he is thanking God that he is alive, and he says this, My heart is glad, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Notice he says his soul, this is where his soul goes to Sheol. So he's speaking about Sheol as a spiritual place. And if you were to study and survey all the other scriptures in the Bible that mention Sheol, you discover a couple of other interesting things about it. One, it, 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 even though it's a spiritual place, it's often described uh, probably figuratively, metaphorically as a place down there, like a spiritual underworld, like in the depths of the earth. Two, it doesn't appear that Sheol was understood by early Christians and Jews as a place of final judgment, uh, like hell is, but instead a place where human souls would await final judgment, right? And, and that makes it distinct from our, 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 and even the biblical understanding of hell. Thirdly, uh, it, it actually had two different realms inside of it. There was a, a, a place where you would much rather be, and there was a side of it that you much rather would not be on. And Jesus actually talks about this uh, in the Gospels, where he shares a parable um, that's built on this understanding of the Jewish and Christian idea of Sheol at the time. It's in book, uh, uh, the book of Luke, chapter 16. You can look it up. But, but in, the, in this parable, Jesus talks about a poor beggar named Lazarus, who is outside of the gate of this rich man, uh, named referred to as dives and dives never helps Lazarus and one day Jesus says that they both die and they descend to the place where the dead souls go and what happens is that this rich man dives finds himself on this really uh, not so great side of Sheol but can actually see across to the other side where there's this great abyss uh, where he can see Lazarus who is on the good side. And what Jesus is doing in that parable is drawing on the idea, uh, this, this, this concept of the afterlife that was prevalent at the time. He, he, he obviously was using it. And, and while there are certainly a lot of other scriptures that we could look at, other questions that might arise here, what, what I want to tell you is based on what we know from the scriptures, it's not hell that, that, um, that, that, that they're referring to as we think about it. It's not hell that's being referred to in the creed. It's this afterlife uh, in this concept of Sheol, right? Okay, so, so Jesus descends to the place of the dead. He goes down to this, this biblical idea of Sheol. And now that we know where Jesus was between the hours of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I want to talk about what he did while he was there. And I, I want to bring out a few points. Number one, Jesus' descent to the dead was part of Jesus' victory over Satan and death. Jesus' descent to the dead was part of Jesus' victory over Satan and death. Did any of y'all see the movie Waterworld uh, a number of years ago? Kevin Costner, I don't know if it was before or after Field of Dreams. Uh, it was a pretty awesome movie. Nobody, I'm not seeing anybody, okay, I'm seeing some people. This was a great movie. It was it was, I liked it better than Field of Dreams. But anyways, uh, uh, this is a movie where Costner, um, 
He, he, one of my favorite scenes is that he actually goes fishing with himself. Has, did, did you all remember that? No? Maybe some of you all? Okay, I love fishing. That's probably why I remember it. But um, if you didn't see the movie, it like this movie depicts a future world where water has basically overtaken the whole earth and things are very, very different. Um, and, and what uh, Costner does, evidently one day he needs to, to get some food. He's hungry, and so he puts his his kind of boat um, on, on auto drive and he grabs this rope and kind of goes back into the water and it's attached to a wench. I think he's got a gun with him when he gets into the water and he just kind of trolls himself there in the water like he's bait. And what happens is after a few, I don't know, 10, 20 seconds, up from the depths of the ocean comes this enormous sea monster fish thing and it absolutely like eats him alive. Right, and so so you're watching like the movie's over. No, but uh, you, you know something's about to happen, but you're not sure what. And then all of a sudden, like he blows up this fish from the inside. He went fishing with himself. Talk about guts on that dude. And then he he blows it up from the inside, and and it was part of his plan. He was bait. Okay, and what what I want to do is make a parallel here. Okay, believe me, it actually works. It's not just because I love fishing. Uh, the early church does a great job bringing this out. But one of the ways that we understand what Jesus did on the cross was that it was like what Kevin Costner did when he put himself on the line in Waterworld, right? The cross was understood as a fish hook that Jesus put himself on for Satan. And the early church did a great job bringing this out. L- let me explain. Uh, one of the things that they would talk about is that when Jesus died, Satan thought he had won. Right? He thought that it was over, that Jesus was dead. He put a stop to the kingdom of God. If you kill Jesus, it's over. Death is, is the thing that defeats us all. He just needed to kill Jesus and end it. But what Satan didn't know is that when death would swallow up Jesus, ultimately that was part of God's redemptive plan, right? Uh, Jesus would, would descend to the dead, free everyone who is in the grips of death in in the place of the dead, and then eventually blow up the thing from the inside out, just like Kevin Costner, right? Kevin Costner and Jesus, I just made that parallel, that's crazy. Um, But but, uh, what's, what's incredible is when you look at the New Testament, Jesus actually uses some of this language to describe his own death, this metaphor of the fish. He says in Matthew 12, 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is using this metaphor of being swallowed up by death like being swallowed up by a, uh, by a fish, right? And, and so this is kind of how he was understanding his own descent to the dead, right? Like Jonah in the belly of a whale. Now, now, now what was he doing when he was there? Uh, what, what Jesus was doing, as I said earlier, was freeing those who were under death's dominion in the place of the dead. And there's scriptures that actually bring this forward. Here's one from the book of Ephesians that explains it like this. Uh, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, that's not the easiest scripture to understand. Let me try to clear it up. That reference to descending into the lower regions, 
that it talks about um, in, uh, in verse 9. It, that, that, that's a reference to the lower regions of the place of the dead. That's a reference to Sheol. That's, that's, what, uh, that's what Paul is talking about. And then at the beginning, that reference to those captives that, that, that uh, Jesus leads out, right? He led a host of captives out. That's a reference to those who had died, right? So, so, so when Jesus goes to Sheol, what that verse is saying is he frees the people who were trapped there. He leads them out. He's saying when he descended to the dead before he ascended into heaven, which is the next part of the creed, which we're going to actually look at next week, he, he, he took everyone who was there with him. He empties the place out and blows up the place from the inside out. Kevin Costner rocking it out, right? So this is why uh, Jesus' descent has been referred to in the early church by the harrowing of he- as the harrowing of hell. Um, it, that, that's what it was called. It's not the right term, hell, but it's the, the right idea that Jesus emptied out the place, that he took it over, that he conquered it. And this is an image uh, from a medieval artist that actually tried to capture the idea, right? You see the fish there as a representation of Sheol. Jesus literally goes and opens up its mouth and frees the people who, who were trapped in, in prison in the belly of the whale, like, it's really an incredible thing. And um, other images that were painted really have Jesus, like, uh, ripping the doors off the hinges of Sheol. Something to illustrate how Jesus went in and he conquered and he took it over and he put it under his foot. And uh, one of the early church leaders named John Christensen uh, said, said it like this. He described it like this in this, like, explanation. When Jesus descended into Hades, he took Hades captive. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. It was embittered for it was abolished. It was embittered for it was mocked. It was embittered for it was purged. Right? He's talking about how Jesus had victory over the power of death and emptied the place of of the dead. And and that's because Jesus' descent was part of Jesus' victory over Satan and death. Right? Pretty cool, right? Really awesome to think about. Okay, here's another thing about Jesus' descent to the dead that you probably uh, have not thought about. I actually hadn't put this together. Jesus' descent actually offers one possibility to, to, to answer the question of what happens to people who die without hearing the gospel. What happens to people who die without hearing the gospel? So that's, that's a really good question. Have you guys ever wondered that? Have you ever heard that question before? You know, I had a friend in university um, he was an Indian fellow, and this was one of his major hang-ups with Christian faith. He, he said, uh, David, I've had the chance to hear the gospel, but I have generations of my family who have lived and died and never once heard about Jesus, right? And he said, it's hard for me to see justice in that, to see God's fairness in that. And I just want to acknowledge that, um, that this is actually a really good question, right? Uh, wondering what happens to people who don't get to hear the gospel, that comes from a place of sympathy where we want to see God's best, God's freedom, God's salvation for every single person. Uh, it comes from a place where, where people want to see justice, where we do believe that there is a fair God, and when we, we think about people who have lived and died and never even had a chance to know about Jesus, it's kind of hard to see where God is fair in that. And so I appreciate this question. I want to say I've asked this question when I was working through my own crisis of faith 
uh, a little bit of time before meeting this Indian guy. This was one of the questions that, that, I, that I had to work through, right? Um, and let me say, also, I'm not fully sure of the answer here. I am not 100% positive of this. And part of the reason is because this isn't a question that the Bible ever is asked. It's not a question that the Bible ever directly answers. Um, but uh, I think there are some things in the character and heart of God that can really lead us in the direction of an answer here. And actually, this, there, there's some scripture that, that might give clues to ha- one way that God might deal with this. Let me share with you something from 1 Peter that might shed some light on this. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, it says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Okay, that is not an easy scripture to understand. I, I did a lot of work in it this week and, um, and read a lot of good scholarship, and here is the best one of the best possible ways we have to understand it. It's likely what Peter is saying here is that when Jesus descended to the dead, and that does seem to be what he's talking about. He said he was made alive by the Spirit. It talks about his death. So it's talking about what happened in the Spirit in his, like, with Jesus after he died. And, and it says uh, that, that Jesus went to the place of the dead, and this scripture specifically says that he preached to those who were there. He preached to the spirits, is what this passage says. And while this scripture specifically refers to those who had died around the days of Noah, what the church has really understood that, and a lot of the commentaries said, is that this is actually probably a reference to, to, to refer to all those ancient people, all those people who lived long ago. Noah is a way to talk about all of these people who were around long before Jesus who never had a chance to hear the gospel. And so what this scripture might be saying is that that Jesus went to the place of the dead, and when he was there, he preached the gospel to them so that they would have a chance to hear and believe. So what happens to people who live and die without ever hearing the gospel? Well, this might be a clue that they get a chance to hear it as well that they are not excluded from God's rescue plan, but that God actually has some sort of way to, to offer salvation to them as well. And, uh, and I'm not 100% sure of that. I, I don't want to give you the impression that, that I am, but I will say that that understanding of this passage does align with things revealed in Scripture about God that we do know, that God is incredibly loving, that God is more than just. He is more than just giving us what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve in grace. And that God, as, as, uh, as, as 1 Timothy 2.4 says, wants all people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? And so God has part of his rescue, uh, even these people that don't get a chance to hear the gospel as well. It's a really interesting thought, huh? The descent to the dead is part of that. Okay, here's the, here's the last thing. Um, I want to draw out uh, where I think this can be helpful here and now. I realize that a lot of this is is kind of hard to get our minds around, how it's relevant for us right right here and now, Uh, but but I I think that it can be in a really good way. And and let me say this, Jesus' descent to the dead can help us have faith that God is at work even when we can't see it. 
Jesus' descent to the dead can help us have faith that God is at work even when we can't see it. You know, earlier this week, um, we were getting ready for school at my house. Four kids, and uh, I had the little baby Jordan in my arm. We were headed into a room to change her diaper and to get clothes on her, and I walked into her room and looked over into the other boys' rooms where they get changed, and uh, the, the four-year-old Johnny was on the floor, face down, face down on the carpet, totally still, hands tucked like under his body like this, just not moving. <laughs> and I thought, oh, geez, the boy's dead, right? What is going on in that room? And, uh, and I, I thought, man, I should go in there and check on him, but we were running a little bit behind. And so <laughs> I was like, meh. And we went, I went into the other room, and I changed Jordan, and we picked out clothes, which is always an endeavor with a two-year-old girl. And, um, and, and about three, four minutes later, uh, I just suddenly heard, like, this yell from the other room. And it goes, Dad! And it was Johnny. He was, he was alive, thank God, right? <laughs> Dad! Dad! And I go, what, Johnny? What's up? And he goes, Dad! I can feel my heart, right? <laughs> he had been sitting there for the last three or four minutes trying to feel his heartbeat on the ground. And I didn't know what he was doing, right? But then it suddenly became very clear. And uh, what I want to say is that, like, I think that's a good reminder for us when we think about Jesus' descent to the dead um, in that it can help remind us that when we don't always know what's going on, that doesn't mean that something isn't going on right, that God isn't at work. Think about this for a second. On Good Friday, right, the disciples had seen Jesus die. Some of them watched as his body was getting cold and was taken off the cross limp. When it was taken to a tomb, when it was buried behind an enormous stone, and from that point on, I mean, you've got to believe that those disciples, all their hopes died, right? They had no idea what was happening. They're downtrodden. They're downtrodden. They cannot see what God is doing. They don't know about the resurrection. They don't know what Jesus is doing, and he's descended to the place to the dead, and he was overcoming part of the power of the curse of sin and death. They can't see any of that. They don't have faith, and I'm just thinking that in our lives, there are so many times when we are confronted with something that isn't as we hoped it would be. We have some dream, and it dies, right? We have some, some hope, and, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen, and our hearts lose their strength, or we look at something that's not as it should be, like we're oppressed by something. Something of power is keeping us from something else, right? We're, we're stuck in an addiction, and we don't know how we're going to get out of it. And, and we cry out to God, and we pray, and we ask for help. But, but oftentimes when we pray, we don't hear an answer immediately. We don't know what God is doing in, in that moment, right? But does that mean that God's not hearing our prayers? No. Like, does that mean that God isn't doing something? Absolutely not. What it means is that God is doing something else something that we just don't see at that moment, that there's a bigger part of God's redemptive plan than what, is, than, than what we want right here and right now. And, and, and I, I think that when you think about this line of the creed, this part of the gospel story, it, it's a reminder that, that even when we don't see it, when we don't know what's going on, that God is still doing things to unfold a plan of redemption that is bigger than just you or I. 
that, that God is always at work doing that. And he is willing to descend to the deepest places of darkness to save you and I, that he will bind up the biggest form of oppression that comes in in our lives to free us from the captivities that we find ourselves in. And there is no point too low that God will not descend to free us from. And, and, and so from those moments of despair, right, I, I, I just encourage you, when, when you say this line of the creed in church or when you remember it, uh, when you're saying a prayer that isn't being answered, um, know that, that there will come a time when God's plan will be revealed, when you will see, when you'll hear Johnny scream in front of the other room like, Dad, I feel my heart, right? That's going to happen. You're going you're gonna to have clarity there. And, and just let it be an encouragement to you. I'm praying that when you're lost uh, and feeling hopeless, that you'll remember that, that Jesus descends to the dead just for you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for, um, gosh, this incredible part of the gospel story that is there in the scriptures that we, um, we, we, that's so hard to, to grasp, that's in some ways intangible, Lord. But I, I just pray that as we think about it and we try to understand what your word says, um, that, that you'd encourage our hearts, that you would help us to see your heart in it, that we would, we would learn to, to trust and love you uh, every day of our lives in knowing that you're working out a greater plan, Lord, that is bigger than us, but one that we get to be included in. And I pray that in the name of your son, Jesus.